This message was recorded at Fillmore Baptist Church in Princeton, Louisiana. Our goal is to faithfully preach the Word of God for the salvation of sinners, the strengthening of believers, and the glory of God. Please visit our website at www.fillmorebaptist.org and listen for more information at the conclusion of this message. Good to see everybody. Uh, if you would, would you turn with me to uh, Matthew 11, the 11th chapter of Matthew That's what we'll read from this morning. We'll start in verse 7. Uh, Matthew 11, verse 7, and we'll read down to verse 19. So 11, verse 7. When you find it, would you stay? In? <clears throat> As they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I liken this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their companions and saying, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We mourned to you, and you did not lament. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look, a glutton and a wine-dibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by her children. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come this morning in the name of Jesus, Lord, thanking you. Again, thank you for your word. Thank you for the privilege of being able to gather together. Lord, I thank you for brothers and sisters in Christ this morning who desire to know You better, who desire to draw close to You, who desire to do Your will. I thank You, Father, for putting that desire within us. I thank You, Lord, for enabling us, for sanctifying us. Thank You for Your Word given to us so that we may know You, so that we may understand what Your will is and what Your will for us is. Lord, we pray as always that You would bless this time together. Bless the proclamation of Your Word. I ask that You enable me to deliver the message You desire to be delivered. And I ask that You grant Clarity, accuracy, 
And Lord, I ask that you enable all of us to hear. May our lives be continually changed by your truth. We thank you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And be seated. Well, if you were here last Sunday night, you know that we're, we're looking at the same section of Scripture again uh, in these verses. And really, um, I'm primarily going to focus in on one verse, uh, that is verse 19, but I, I wanted the rest of it read uh, just as a reminder, to, and I'll be referring to uh, some of the other verses as well, but just as a, re- a reminder to help us uh, get these statements in context, I wanted to come back to it again because uh, the latter part of verse 19, though it is uh, somewhat difficult um, to understand, or at least uh, at least to me it seems to be, um, I think there's a profound exhortation here uh, to desire and seek truth, truth. Many times there are things that sound good to us, pleasant to us. And that's what we, as part of our human nature, that's what we tend to be drawn toward, whether it's, whether it's good or not. Uh, I would rather have a bowl of Rocky Road Bluebell than Brussels sprouts. I mean, that's just, that's just fact. And uh, uh, unfortunately... <laughs> that's not only true when it when it comes to uh, physical diet. Unfortunately, that's true in other areas as well. And of course, the way we're mainly going to be thinking about it is in regards to our spiritual life, which of course uh, has implications for the rest of life. Uh, but we are we are drawn to what we like naturally. We're drawn to what we feel comfortable with naturally. We're drawn to what we're used to, we all, we all come at life with preconceived notions about things and how things ought to be. And spiritual things are no exception to that rule. We, we come to God, and it, and it sounds uh, blasphemous to say so, and, uh, and that's probably because it is, um, but we, we come to God with preconceived notions notions about how he ought to be and how he ought to do things and how he ought to think about people and about circumstances and about us. And so I, I think in, in Jesus' words here, um, penned by Matthew under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I think we have a, a, an exhortation here, as we so often do in the Scripture, Toward truth. Toward truth. Now, Jesus is dealing with crowds that are becoming more and more hostile towards Him, at least in their thinking, and later uh, it will manifest uh, physically. Um, Don Carson has noted in his commentary that uh, that's, that's basically the theme here of chapters 11 through 13. The increasing uh, rejection the, the increasing uh, opposition 
toward Jesus. He's, he's being faced with it again and again, and he's dealing with it. Um, from passage we considered last week, uh, where he says to John the Baptist in verse 6, Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And by the way, I want us to keep that, that one in mind. Uh, over to the woes that he will pronounce in the latter part of this chapter on the cities who have seen uh, the most of, of, his, uh, of his works. And then uh, all the way, as I mentioned already, all the way through chapter 13. Jesus is going about doing what we have talked about from the beginning, doing good and truth and telling the truth and being condemned for it, being rejected for it. Now, amazingly, we we talked last week about John the Baptist uh, primarily. Amazingly, John the Baptist himself began to have doubts about who Jesus was. It was reported to him, uh, verse 2, the deeds of Christ. Matthew says, verse 2, now when John heard in prison about the deeds or the works, that could be translated works, uh, the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And that's interesting because John hears reports about what Jesus is doing And somehow that sparks this question of doubt. Are you the one, the coming one? Or do we look for another? And without going, you know, back all the way through that again, just just kind of sum it up this way, um, I don't think that uh, John the Baptist was... uh, uh, forsaking Christ at this point, he was just—he was just not sure about the way things were taking place. Again, because of the works of Jesus, because of the deeds of Jesus, it wasn't playing out the way that he anticipated. Now, here he is announcing the coming of the kingdom and the king, and the king comes, arrives on the scene, and John winds up in prison, and it doesn't seem that Jesus is. Um, making haste to deliver him. In fact, Jesus is going on about his teaching and preaching. Now, interestingly enough, it seems that John questions whether or not Jesus is truly the Christ based on his deeds, his works. Again, verse 2. Interestingly enough, Jesus sends an answer based on his works, his deeds. He says to the messengers in verse 4, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended by me. So Jesus seems to be saying... um, in response to John's question, I'm doing exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. The problem is not what I'm doing. What I'm doing is in fulfillment of the prophecies. What I'm doing is in perfect obedience to the will of God. The problem is not in my works and what I'm doing. The problem is in your understanding. 
of what I'm doing. The problem is you have wrong expectations. Now, uh, we see that again from those who oppose Jesus. And, and, and let me be clear here. I'm not putting John in the same boat with them. I'm not categorizing John with the unbelievers. What I'm saying is he had wrong expectations apparently. And because of that, he had some doubts. On the other hand, the unbelieving Jews also had wrong expectations, uh, but they were uh, indeed standing in opposition to Christ. Again, because of His works. And I think that's why Jesus issues that warning in verse 6. Not, it's not just targeted at John the Baptist, although it, of course, it applies to everybody. It applies to him. It applies to the Pharisees. It applies to you and me. It applies to everybody. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. In other words, Jesus is saying, if I can paraphrase it, what, what you must do is accept me for who I am. What you must do is, is, is not come up with an idea of who the Christ is, who the Savior is, and then see if I measure up. What you must do is look at me to understand who the Christ is. What you must do is look at me to understand the will of God. So happy is the one, or blessed is the one, who is not offended by me. There, uh, Jesus makes Himself the center uh, there of of the scandal. Um, If you're not scandalized by me, you're blessed. Of course, the implication is if you are scandalized by me, That's a curse. You're cursed. You're in in trouble. But again, it's based upon what he's doing. Now, let's move to away from John, who himself uh, was in his ministry doing the will of God, to the unbelievers that are also, well, not also, but they are are, uh, blatantly opposing Christ. Now, some are just kind of indifferent. They, they wouldn't think of themselves, like many people today, don't think of themselves as being opposed to God. They're just indifferent. And they don't understand that that is opposition. What he's looking for is not indifference, not blatant opposition, but humble submission to his will, to his purposes. Now, uh, John sins and asks this question, are you the coming one or should we look for another? There's apparently some doubt there. And Jesus, in response uh, to the people there, He doesn't, he doesn't defend Himself and say, look, uh, of course I'm the coming one. And here, let me explain to you why. But interestingly enough, He defends John. And He begins to talk about uh, how great John is. But He does that by, again, focusing on His deeds, His personality, who he is, who he was, who he, what he was doing, because John also was doing God's will. He was doing what God designed for him to do. All right, we, we, we kind of went into detail about that last Sunday night, so I'm not going uh, to spend any time on it here. Let's just go down to Jesus' parable here um, in verse 16. Now he's speaking to those who stand in opposition to him. 
Uh, and again, uh, when I say opposition, I'm including those who, who are just indifferent, who just don't believe, who just don't accept Him as the Christ. Verse 16. He gives a parable. What I've called here the parable of the reluctant children. Um, interesting. Uh, you know, I know this comes as a surprise to everybody, but sometimes children are hard to get along with. <laughs> and sometimes we're hard to get along with because we act like children. And that's, that's what Jesus is, is saying, I think. Uh, so he uses children, specifically children who, uh, who are hard to get along with here, um, as a parable, as a simile to make a point about the people who stand in opposition to Him. Verse 16, But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. Now, let's stop right there for a moment. Let's talk a little bit about the parable. Um, in the marketplace, of course, that's, you know, in kind of in the town center where there's a lot of commerce going on and there would be kids in the streets playing. And um, one of the, the common games that I think Jesus is alluding to here, um, of course, children mimicking adults, and they're playing these games of, of wedding and funeral. Um, and, and Jesus uses that and makes application to the ministries of John the Baptist and himself. In the words of uh, John MacArthur, John MacArthur uh, refers to it as, you know, John the Baptist comes in funeral mode. <laughs> the way Jesus describes the austere life of John the Baptist, and we'll get more to that, uh, deal with that more in a moment. And Jesus comes in wedding mode. More of a, uh, more liberty, more, more of a uh, uh, celebration in fact, you remember John the Baptist's disciples came to the disciples of Jesus one time asking about that. Why don't you fast like we do and like the disciples of the Pharisees do? And Jesus responded and said, well, they can't, they can't mourn while the bridegroom is with them. When the bridegroom is taken away, taken away then they will fast. And he, he, again, uses that analogy of a wedding celebration to say we're in a celebratory mode. It's wedding mode, feasting and celebration. Good times. They'll fast when the bridegroom is taken away. Then they'll mourn. But John the Baptist and his disciples are in funeral mode. So, the kids mimic adults in these things. You know, in fact, in the Middle East, and I think they still do this, when they would have a funeral, they would literally hire paid mourners. And you've probably seen them on the, on the news, uh, you know, wailing. There's a, a noise that they do that I won't attempt uh, to do, and I'm sure you're all grateful for that. But, uh, you know, just kind of a, a shrilly uh, sound. And, and they actually pay mourners to come and participate in the funerals and, and do that. And it was common in the first century um, to mourn. And so, in, in fact, we as Christians are instructed to mourn with those who mourn, right? Not, not, in a, uh, not because we get paid or in some, any 
way in uh, of insincere fashion, but to literally mourn with those who mourn. And so these kids are, are playing a game. And we're going to play the funeral game. And so we all, we've all got to act like we're, we're mourning and mimic the adults when they, when they conduct their funerals. And, and their playmates that they're calling to, Jesus says, are basically sitting over there saying, we don't want to do that. You know, I'm bored. That's boring. We don't want to play that game. That's, mourning is no fun. So, we sang a dirge. Or, I'm sorry, we, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. So, so the children switched to wedding mode. Let's play the wedding game. Let's, let's celebrate. Let's dance. Like the adults do when they're celebrating a wedding. And my understanding is the weddings would last like seven days. And they would feast and party during that time. This was part of the culture. And the playmates that they're calling out to, again, would say, I don't want to do that. That doesn't sound like fun. I don't want to do that. And what Jesus is saying is, this generation is, is like that. You can't be pleased. You can't be pleased. You won't play the game. You'd rather stand back and criticize. Unbelief is often veiled in criticism. In an attempt to, you know, to sound more spiritual. Oh, well, he hangs out with tax collectors and sinners. He can't be of God. His ministry can't be genuine. Look at, look at who he eats with. Look at the people that he talks to, that he preaches to. Look at the people that follow him around. Or in John the Baptist's case, it was, that <laughs> man's crazy. He's obviously crazy. Look at him. He's wearing camel skins, lives in the wilderness. He's a legalist. Watch out for him. That guy thinks, thinks it's all about works. He's always talking about repentance. He's always talking about doing right. Yeah, he's, it's, his whole ministry just works oriented. He, he thinks you just, devotion to God means you've got to put your whole life into it. And then they look at Jesus again and say, boy, now, now he's too liberal. I mean, he, he's just the other extreme. He, he thinks it's okay to drink wine. He thinks it's okay to participate in feasts with prostitutes and tax collectors. Yeah, he's a liberal. He's a liberal and John's, John's a legalist. Yeah, that's what Jesus says. This, this is what this generation is like. John came neither eating nor drinking. Or Luke says, drinking wine. John came neither eating nor drinking wine in Luke 7. In other words, he, he, he led a very austere life, an ascetic life. 
He wasn't dressed in soft clothing. He didn't live in king's houses. He wasn't feasting all the time. In fact, he ate to live instead of living to eat. He was a great example of devotion to God that manifested in every area of life. He was just fully committed. And what did you say about him? You wouldn't play the game. Or you say, well, he's, he's, got a, he's got a devil. Man's obviously demon-possessed. But Jesus says, the Son of Man, and He's referring to Himself there in verse 19, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. And they say, look at Him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So it's just criticism. Unbelief is, is veiled in criticism. We don't like John. He's too austere. He's too much of an ascetic. We don't like Jesus. He's too liberal. And so they just rejected both and criticized. Couple of, I want to read a couple of quotes here, um, just kind of for application. Um, one from John MacArthur, his commentary. He says, Some of those who refused to believe the gospel covered their unbelief with criticism. Jesus compared them to foolish children sitting in the marketplace who objected to everything the other children did. They were like many people today who find fault with whatever the preacher and other church leaders do. No matter what is said or done, such people pick, a, pick it apart and use the objection, whether real or imagined, justified or unjustified, as an excuse for rejection. Because they have no saving relationship to Christ, they refuse to receive His truth or serve His church. But they love to harp against both. That is, they love to harp against the truth and the church. Spurgeon said this, about the kids in the parable, they could never agree, Charles Spurgeon, they could never agree upon the game. They were disagreeable, sullen, and resolved to reject every offer. Thus is it at this hour, one preacher who speaks with elegant diction is too flowery. And another who uses plain speech is vulgar. The instructive preacher is dull, and the earnest preacher is far too excitable. There is no suiting some people. Even the great Lord of all finds his wise arrangements met with discontent. And Spurgeon prays, offers this prayer, Lord, deliver us from a fault-finding spirit. For if we begin objecting, we are apt to keep on at it. If we will not hear one preacher, we may soon find ourselves quite weary of a second and a third. And before long, it may come to pass that we cannot hear any minister to profit. Now, Jesus said that's what this generation is like. Children who are just resolved to 
reject. They've got preconceived ideas about the way things should be. And so when they're confronted with truth, they reject it out of hand. It doesn't meet our standards. It's, it's not the way our denomination does it. It's not what we were taught. And yet, the point Jesus is making here about Himself and John the Baptist is that they were doing the will of God. In other words, they were accurately portraying truth. In fact, Jesus perfectly. John was... We don't find any fault with John in the, in the Scripture other than, you know, if you want to fault him for having the doubts we read about in this passage. But John was a man. He was a sinner saved by grace. So I'm assuming he made mistakes, even in the ministry. Um, but there are no faults with Jesus. And Jesus sometimes would ask His accusers, what are, you, what are you going to stone me for? What sin have I committed? What fault do you find with me? Isn't that astounding? <laughs> and they couldn't answer. Not intelligibly anyway. And the Roman governor himself, Pilate, his, his testimony after interrogating Jesus was, I find no fault with this man. Isn't that astounding? And isn't it astounding? I mean, this may seem like an odd thing to think about, but Jesus never, ever once apologized. That's fascinating to me. And by the way, I'm not suggesting... Uh, there, there are many ways... Uh, in fact, this is one of the points of this sermon. We need to mimic Jesus. But that's one area... You know, the not apologizing part that, that we, we, can't, we can't mimic Him in that. But it's fascinating to me, especially in light of all of today's pop psychology, that Jesus never once, never once said, look, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I hurt your feelings. Perhaps I was too harsh. I, I, I saw a movie once. I don't think I watched the whole thing. I don't even remember the name of it. It was one of these, uh, you know, modern dep- depictions of the life of Christ. It's, I mean, at least that's the way they build it. Uh, it was nothing like the New Testament, but um, and and that was one of the things that they put in there. You know, after he after he cleared out the temple with with whips, he apologized for losing his temper. That didn't come from the Bible. <laughs> Jesus never once apologized. Apologize. Not once. The reason is not because he wasn't humble. The reason is because he never did anything wrong. And that's, that's the point that I'm trying to make. Jesus himself, we, we might could say, well, John was, I mean, they said John had a demon. And John, after all, was just a man. He probably made mistakes. Some of those false accusations perhaps, perhaps were based on good ground. But you cannot say that in Jesus' case. Everything He did was perfect. He represented the truth perfectly. When He speaks of Himself, 
and John as, as playing the flute or singing a dirge. In other words, he's saying, yes, we came with two different types of lifestyles and ministry, but you wouldn't accept any of it. And if they should have accepted either one, then they should have accepted both, but I mean, if you're going to pick one, certainly they should have accepted the life and ministry of Jesus. There was no fault in Him. So the point is this. He did everything perfectly in speech and in conduct. And yet He was criticized and opposed. Mocked and ultimately murdered. Now, what is the reason for that? Well, I think we've already established the fact that it wasn't His fault so it, it must have been the fault of his opposition. In other words, they had wrong views. And that's what he's saying here. Nothing pleases you, meaning nothing truthful. He sets his own ministry in contrast with John the Baptist. We have two different lifestyles, two different approaches, if you will. Actually, just two different functions, God-given functions. And here's the thing, and this is what Jesus is saying. Both were correct. John was doing the will of God. He was speaking the will of God. He's called the messenger who was to come and prepare the way before the Lord. He's called the voice of one crying in the wilderness. He was not only a prophet himself. Jesus says he was more than a prophet. More than a prophet because he himself was the subject of prophecy in Isaiah and Malachi. And because he himself prophesied during a period in which the kingdom was inaugurated. Other prophets, well, they all had spoken about it, but they existed long before it. And John was actually there when it, when it came into being, when it was manifested, when the Christ walked the earth. John was there and personally pointed him out. He was fulfilling his role. And Jesus even goes so far in verse 11, in verse 11 to call Him the greatest among men. There hasn't been anybody born among women greater than John the Baptist. Now, he was a sinner, a sinner saved by grace. We know he wasn't perfect. And yet, Jesus says, there's, there's never been a man greater than John the Baptist. That's, that's quite a testimony. And you said he had a demon. And he was a preacher of righteousness, and that's why he was beheaded when he stood against Herod for having his brother's wife. He was doing God's will. He was correctly representing, manifesting the will of God. He was fulfilling his role. And the people basically stood back like the kids in the marketplace and said, This guy's pitiful. We don't want any part with him. He's demon-possessed. Now, it's true. There were a lot of Jews that were baptized by John. A lot of them that did accept uh, his ministry. Uh, but generally speaking, especially... Now, here's, here's the kicker to me. Generally speaking, they rejected him. Especially, and this may be who Jesus has in mind, especially the religious crowd. 
the religious crowd. They wanted nothing to do with John the Baptist or Jesus. They had their own concept. They had their own idea of the way things ought to be. They had their own concept of the way ministry and religion is carried out. We, we think it should be done this way, and John's not going with the plan. It didn't matter that he was telling the truth. And then what about Jesus? Jesus, as we've already seen, Matthew testifies already, is the Christ. He's the Anointed One. The Christ of God. The, the Son of God. We know from, from, from our vantage point, from this side of the cross, and, and you know, having the, the, the completed Scripture, the Eternal Son of God. God incarnate, according to John 1. The eternal Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He's the ultimate Master and Teacher, King of kings and Lord of lords. He's the fulfillment of all Old Testament prophecy. Everything that the scribes and the Pharisees and the other religious uh, Elements, everything that they held on to, that they claimed, professed to believe and hold on to, was embodied in Jesus, the one they rejected. We'll take Moses. Moses is our teacher. Really? Jesus says. You're not hearing Moses. Because Moses spoke about me. Abraham is our father, they said. Really, Jesus said? If you're the children of Abraham, you'd love me. Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. They, they had a different concept. He's, he's the embodiment of every, every bit of the Old Testament. Not just fulfillment of certain prophecies, but all of the Old Testament is pointing to Him. Now, here He is, face to face with Him, right before their eyes, living out perfectly the will of God, representing perfectly the truth of God in His eating with tax collectors and sinners and drinking with them, in His celebratory wedding mode, doing perfectly the will of God. And they're standing back saying, we're not going to dance. You look ridiculous. Now, here's the statement that, to me, is, uh, is, is difficult. In verse 19... Again, when Jesus speaks of Himself, the Son of Man, you know, He says, John came neither eating nor drinking. You said He had a devil. Verse 19, the Son of Man, that is Jesus, came eating and drinking. And, you, and they say, look, look at Him. A glutton and a drunkard. A friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, Jesus responds, yet, wisdom is justified 
by her deeds. Wisdom is justified by her deeds. Jesus responds with a proverb. Wisdom is justified by her deeds. Now, the term justified there, uh, it means like vindicated or proved right in, when it's used in this sense. It's not, uh, in fact, I, I had you know, labeled this point the justification of God's wisdom. Uh, so we're not, we're not talking in terms here of, uh, usually when we hear the word justification, what do we think about? We, we think about us as sinners being justified, right, based upon the righteousness of Christ. But there are uh, other uh, aspects, uh, other ways in which that term is used. Um, so here he's talking about not our justification, not the justification of sinners, but interestingly, he's talking about the justification of the wisdom of God. God's own wisdom. That, that's an astounding thing to even think about in itself. That, that people would stand up against God's wisdom as if, as if to say, we know better than you. Not as if, that is, that is the human mindset in, in our natural state. And it, I think even as regenerate uh, people, we, it's, it's uh, something we have to wrestle with. Come to terms with truth and God's wisdom and set our own aside. Now, we, we touched just briefly this morning in Sunday school on a passage for a different purpose, but we were looking at a passage in in uh, 1 Corinthians. Um, let me read just a little bit of that. <clears throat> Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.17, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now, he's not saying that uh, he, Paul is making contrast in this chapter between the wisdom of man and the wisdom of God. He sets the one against the other. So when he says, not with words of eloquent wisdom, he doesn't mean, I just preach foolishness, you know. It's just, everything I say is just ridiculous. He's not saying that. He's saying, not according to the wisdom of man. But certainly, the gospel is wisdom. And uh, that's one of the things I think Jesus is saying in Matthew eleven nineteen. So Paul says, God sent me, or Christ sent me, to, to preach the gospel. Not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing. Now let me ask you something. Is, is the gospel foolishness? Absolutely not. Again, what, what Paul is saying is, to the world, it's foolishness. He's saying, the message that I preach, they consider to be folly. So he's in the same boat here that Jesus was in, Matthew 11, and John the Baptist. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. <laughs> the same message... They think it's foolishness. We know 
It's the power of God unto salvation. So he goes on, verse 19, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God... Now hear that. There there are the two wisdoms right there in one verse. The wisdom of the world... And the wisdom of God. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So what what Paul is saying is, in the wisdom of God, God designed things in such a way that the world could not know God through worldly wisdom. You may be an Albert Einstein. That doesn't mean you're saved. It doesn't mean you can find the truth of the Gospel. God has made it that way. So that through wisdom, the world cannot know God. That is, through the wisdom of the world. So, Paul says, we preach because God has designed that through the foolishness of what we preach or the message preached to save those who believe. In other words, they're not saved through worldly wisdom. They're saved through the preaching of the gospel. Let me paraphrase that another way. They're saved by truth. They they must hear, understand, embrace the truth. So Paul says in verse 22, here in 1 Corinthians 1, The Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews. It's exactly what Jesus is saying in Matthew 11. Why, Why does He say, Blessed is he that is not offended in me. And it's the same word there, scandalized. It's the idea of a stumbling block. Offended. Blessed are those who do not stumble over me. Why does he say that? Because they were. Because they were stumbling over him. They were stumbling over his ministry. He wasn't meeting their expectations. What he was presenting as truth did not line up with their preconceived ideas. And it, and it just escalated. I mean, it became more so the closer he got to the cross and certainly at the other side of the cross. And that's what Paul is saying. We preach Christ crucified. How foolish to the world. I mean, this is the truth, Paul is saying. This message, the only way any human being can be reconciled to God is through acceptance of this message, this gospel. Christ crucified. Jesus died for sinners. There's no other way for your sins to be paid for. It's only through the cross of Christ. So Paul says it's foolishness to them, to those who perish, but to us who believe it's the power of God. He says in Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Why? Again, because it's the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first 
and to the Gentile. It's the truth, in other words. But, he says, verse 23, it's a stumbling block to the Jews and it's foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. It's the truth, the wisdom of God that John the Baptist was presenting when he was commanding repentance. When he told the Jews, repent and bring forth fruit worthy of repentance. Because the kingdom of God is at hand. He was accurately representing the will of God. And when Jesus came preaching the same message, but a whole different lifestyle than John, he was still accurately representing the true will of God. In other words, God's wisdom was manifest in the ministry of John the Baptist and in the ministry of Jesus Christ. Perfectly in the ministry of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, wisdom, that is the wisdom of God, is justified or proved right by her works. Now remember, uh, it's, it's the works that John the Baptist had a problem with back earlier in the chapter, and it's the works that the Pharisees had a problem with. I mean, he's, he's hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. It's what he was doing that they didn't like. And yet, it's what He was doing that Jesus says proves right His wisdom. The wisdom of God. Now, let me say this real quick. I can't spend time on this, but I know if you're looking at an old King James, for example, uh, or I think even the New King James. I don't have it right here in front of me, but um, that, that verse says, Wisdom is justified by her children. I can't, I can't go into detail here, but I'll be glad to if you want to ask me about it later. I just can't do it right here right now. But um, there's a textual variation there. That is, some of the ancient manuscripts say children. Some of the ancient manuscripts say works. Okay, so that's why, uh, for example, in the in the uh, uh, the English Standard Version, which I'm reading from here, uh, they consider the older. A lot, a lot of times, you'll see this said in the footnotes. The older, uh, more accurate, uh, more reliable is usually what it says. Older, more reliable. Uh, manuscripts, and sometimes they'll list them, um, have thus and so. Um, so, uh, the translators considered this to be the correct uh, wording, all right? Um, in Luke, um, it does say, children, wisdom is justified of her children. Now, if you take the two statements, I think they essentially say, even though they say it with different words, they say the same thing. Um, in other words, Jesus here says wisdom is justified by her works. And he's referring to the works of John the Baptist and the works of himself as manifesting the wisdom of God. So, in other words, he's referring to their lifestyle. The lifestyle of John the Baptist, ascetic. The lifestyle of Jesus was more celebratory, uh, more um, liberal in the sense of you know, being liberated, uh, expressing liberty. But it was their works. Luke says wisdom is justified by her children. 
But again, that's a reference to, I think, John the Baptist and Jesus. So, in, in one sense, it's, it's two ways of saying the same thing. Uh, if, if Jesus justifies wisdom, then His works justify wisdom. If the works of John the Baptist justify wisdom, then His person, John the Baptist. Uh, you, you can't, the point is this, you can't separate somebody from what they do. And what Jesus is saying, uh, if I may paraphrase it, is the proof's in the pudding. Some, you can say whatever you will. I can say whatever I will. The question is, what are we doing? What are we doing? Are we doing God's will? And he's saying, John the Baptist and himself were doing the will of God, and by their deeds, the wisdom of God was proved to be right. Now, certainly the Pharisees didn't agree with that. You might say, well, if it was proved to be right, why didn't they? Well, they didn't accept the proof. But it doesn't change what's true. So, wisdom, the wisdom of God is justified by her deeds, by what she does. Just some thoughts as we close here. Where is our heart in terms of devotion? What is our faith based upon? What is our our belief and conduct based upon? And I think this is what Jesus is essentially saying in this passage and many other passages. We've already looked at many that carry the same connotation. What, What we profess must also be lived out. Or I could say it this way. We we must not only profess righteousness, which is what the Pharisees would have done. We must not only profess righteousness, we must live it. Now, they weren't doing that. Jesus was, John the Baptist was, and the Pharisees criticized him for doing it. We must not only... Here's another way of saying it. We must not only confess faith in Jesus... We must mimic Him. That is, in righteousness. Act like Him. What was Jesus doing? What did His works consist of? Loving people. Serving people. Speaking the truth in love. Standing for the truth. True righteousness. And remember, the the Jews, the the religious Jews, the, the Pharisees, they had their own concept. And by the way, um, if you if you uh, if you if you look at the passage that that uh, uh, just comes to mind, so I'm not, I can't even tell you. Where, I can tell you later where it's found if you ask me. But um, remember the little parable that Jesus gives. He says, you know, there's a uh, a Pharisee and a sinner in the in the synagogue, and the sinner's beating his breast, saying, you know, God forgive me, I'm a sinner. Have mercy on me. And the Pharisees standing over there saying, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like this fellow. That is a, uh, how can I say that? They professed a grace-based 
faith. The Pharisee wasn't thanking himself that he was good enough to be better than that guy. He was thanking God that he was good enough to be better than that guy. That's a distorted view of grace. And it set them in opposition to what Jesus was doing. And I think that mindset is still a great danger today. So they professed grace, but they were not living, they were not doing the will of God. So true righteousness is what we have revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. It's not a set of standards that we come up with. It's not what we think is good, what we like, what we're comfortable with. It's what is right here. True righteousness is seen in the life of Jesus. That's what He's saying to them. You're criticizing Me when you ought to be learning from Me. Your whole concept is off base. And I'm showing you the will of God. And He shows it to us right here. True righteousness is revealed to us in the pages of the Bible. His Word. So may our beliefs and practices, hopes and desires, have as their source and their motive the revealed will of God. So that we may do, do the will of God. And in doing so, justify, that is prove right, the wisdom of God. Would you stand? Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your Spirit within us, making Your truth alive in us and real to us. It is real, but Lord, we are dull Our minds are dull. In the flesh, we have a tendency toward rebellion. We thank You for Your sanctifying work, without which there would be no hope for us. Teach us, Lord, from Your Word, by Your Spirit, true righteousness. Teach us to mimic our Savior for Your honor and glory. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. In Jesus' name, Amen. This sermon is made available through the ministry of Fillmore Baptist Church in Princeton, Louisiana. Our desire is to faithfully proclaim the message of salvation which God has provided in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. For more resources and information, please visit our website at www.fillmorebaptist.org. You may use the links there to contact us or write us at Fillmore Baptist Church, 6304 Highway 80, Princeton, Louisiana, 71067.